enter the crib. Your strike back sit rep starts in three, two, one. Wait, do we go on zero? Welcome back, Meavers, for your episode nine review. Warning, spoilers ahead. Now you know. As usual, we'll have our review for you, our behind-the-scenes facts from showrunner Jack Lothian. And we are so excited. We have two interviews for you today. We have first our military advisor, Paul Bittes, who, oh my God, just was cracking us up. <laughs> and composer Scott Shields. We know you love the music and Strike Back, so you're going to love to hear from him. So first, let's start with our review. Episode 9. Deb, what did you think? Wow. I almost don't want to say what I thought because then it makes it real that it was episode nine and we only have one left. I know. It's gone by really fast. Really, really fast. Oh, I can't believe this is episode nine review. Okay. Episode nine, I thought, you know, when you look back at the episode, not a huge amount of stuff happened, but it was all about tension. The whole episode was just focused on like really intense moments. So not oh a huge God, amount, yeah. not a huge amount of stuff happened. Not a lot of like forward progress in the plot. Yeah, I was gonna say not a lot of plot happened. I yeah, guess. but damn, it was tense. Shit. It was a really yeah. stressful episode. I mean, and it started right, right from the beginning with Mac talking to the guy with you know the dead man switching his hand, waiting to blow up whatever he was gonna blow up. Obviously, the suitcase nuke. And just that, like, intense conversation between the two of them and what was going to happen as we see the team going through trying to find the bomb. And damn, that was, I mean, that was a really good building breach and, and firefight. And it was very stressful. And then it all just sort of built to the one that we've been oh waiting for all season. I literally held my breath. The yeah. whole time. I mean, it was amazing. Wonders are commonplace in movies, but they are not commonplace on television. And that was a very, very intricate, long wonder. And if that doesn't get nominated from some, for some awards, then we know there's somebody who just yeah. has it out for action. But it was really, really good. It was. It was, I think I said to somebody, we've talked to so many people now, thankfully, but that it felt like what video game movies try to do, where they put you in the position of the player. You got that kind of similar perspective, but it was the first time it was actually done successfully that you really felt like you were there, dodging around the corner, taking cover with Noven, and and it was, God, it was intense. I mean, my heart was racing. I was holding my breath. It was incredible. Yeah, and, you know, I... I don't know how many times I've watched it now and that tension never goes away. Mm-hmm. Every time I watch it, it's there. I just appreciate that one or more and more and more every time I see it with how much is going on in the background and how many things they had to get right. It's right up there with some of the best oneers ever done on television. It, right up there with the 192 school shooting one, which was longer, but oh my God, just as intense and right up there with the true detective biker gang raid thing um oneer that they did this was just yeah i was yeah. gonna say one of the best i've seen is the daredevil the hallway fight in um in daredevil on netflix which was phenomenal um but this this was just 
Yeah, it was really cool. Really cool. Like, not just well done, but, like, cool. <laughs> I don't know what other word to use for it. It just, it had a a swagger to it that was very strife back. Yeah, very, very. And, geez, the pressure on a Lynn to get all of that down. I, I mean, on all of them, obviously, because there was a huge number of people involved in that one and with all the the shooting and stuff going on in the background and all the baddies that jumped out but the camera was on Alin for so long and there was so much switching off of positions between the steady cam and her and oh okay i could go on and on about yeah. about how good that that was and we've been waiting all season for it um i mean Jack mentioned it even in the preseason interview, yeah. just how good it is. And we waited and waited and waited, and it didn't let me down at, Not at all. It was fantastic. So really, that was, you know, that long take, that wonder was was the payoff for the night. And the rest of it, yeah, everything was just so high tension. I mean, with Pavel going into the um, the satellite area, you know, the, the he just ramped up the tension with such unnecessary evil you know even his his co-baddies were not expecting to kill those people right and you know again his he's you know his his judgments about who lives up to his standards and you know he's just got a bullet with zarkova's name on it since she sort of went over to the other side as he would see it but so you know he's just got a bullet with her name on it and he's just waiting i i just don't think there's any thing that could redeem him for me right now he's just so focused on whatever his evil goal is that yeah. you gotta <laughs> those, his two co-baddies have got to be like when's the bullet coming for me yeah right i mean you can't trust him no matter no. what you are to him now yeah i totally agree i mean this episode was phenomenal and of course all the stuff with wyatt and and you have this like momentarily very brief lying to yourself at the beginning where you're like he got out and he's with back with Madison oh. and you're like I know he didn't really because it's strike back but I can lie to myself for a few minutes that he's gonna be happy and then of course it doesn't take and um and he's back and I will actually start tonight with the most emotional moment. So the most emotional moment for me was when Novin tells him that Mac is disappointed that he came back. Yes. Not disappointed not angry with him that he left but disappointed that he came back. That to me was the right. emotional moment. Boom, right there. Like, yeah, I just... it broke his heart. Oh. When she said that, it broke his heart when you came. Oh, yeah. That was the, I have, there was actually quite a few sort of went by really quick, but pretty emotional moments. That I, was definitely my, my emotional moment for the night. But there were several, several things that I thought were, one that I thought about was, him. I will. Kelsey, let me tell you about every freaking emotion I felt in this show tonight. <laughs> in detail, please describe the scenes. Emotional moment number one <laughs> was actually a funny emotion. Perhaps you're familiar with those, Kelsey. <laughs> I thought the scene between Novin, there were like mirror scenes. There was Novin and Zarkova at the bar having the little girlfriend talk about Coltrane. Mm. 
And then yeah. down in the in the wine cellar, yeah. Mac and Wyatt having a little bro friend talk. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that was really funny that I'm like, oh, look at that little girlfriend moment. Oh, look at that little boyfriend moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look. Oh, the, what was it? Oh, you've lost weight. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. You've lost weight. Oh, yeah. You shaved up. Clean up. <laughs> I just thought that was hysterical. Was that your only emotional moment of the yep, night, Kelsey? that was mine. That was it. No other emotions. There were no other emotions. Except for like, know. oh, that's so sweet with Wyatt and Matt, you know, Maddie, and you're like, oh, and when he wanted to punch the computer guy in the face, I yeah. totally felt that emotion too. Great. And he's like, you scared I'd beat you up? And I was like, oh my God, Wyatt would kill you with his pinky, you little turd. Plus I thought, that guy, okay. He, he punched the bag. He, he was my... Who was the money launderer guy? Uh, the 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 uh, guy last year, the one that talked like Jack Nicholson wannabe. Oh yeah. He was terrible. I so I didn't like him. And this guy for me, I we love our strike back baddies. I didn't love this one. It was he was too he was too bad with no reason. He's just a jerk. I mean, you hired this guy's security. You know his background. How you would ever think to yourself to say something like, are you afraid I would beat you up? To any person who's been in the military, much less, like, special forces. I would, you know, you anyways. Move the punching bag. Well, the second I saw him, all I could think of was Pharma Bro. You know, what was that guy's <laughs> name who went to prison? That That's exactly who this guy yeah. was. But he's just such that's an true. arrogant prick yeah. that he would say something like yeah. that. You that's know? true. So I guess there is realism out there. Ugh, I hate people like that. Okay, what was your fight of the night, Deb? Fight of the night was, I have to say it was the one-er again. I mean, it was a firefight, but it was the one-er. But obviously the only other real fight was the wine cellar. Right. Which was just comical. I mean, it was. It was, just, it was pretty funny. It was like, okay, this, I think it's just supposed to be our sort of, you know, Keystone Cops yeah. moment of humor but I mean it was a good fight but yeah it was pretty funny so yeah I totally agree I mean I think that one shot was so mind-blowing that it's almost hard to talk about anything else with the episode because that just it was so huge so good it yeah so good. it was what the fuck moment uh I guess for me I don't know probably Wyatt going back but it wasn't really a what the fuck it was just like a this is not what I wanted but it is what I wanted. And of course he's back. But damn it, why is he back? I don't know. I didn't really have a big what the fuck moment this week. How about you? Hmm. I Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a huge what the fuck. There were a lot of sort of mini what the fucks. Like when um, Petrenko stabbed the stabbed Pharma bro in the leg. That yeah. was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> when she knew about the bomb in the, you know, when Pavel came out shooting... That was kind of like, whoa! Yeah, I mean, that's it wasn't true. Really, that one was a surprise. Yeah. It was pretty damn cool, too. Yeah. And then when she knew about the bomb, I thought, okay. I mean, it was cool because it, it, you know, obviously it, it clued the rest of the team off. So Pavel planned to shoot the whole place up no matter what. Yeah. Again. Again. He's just violent to be violent. I should have picked that as my what the fuck moment. You're right. Because they did. When he walked in and did the like, the two. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. A little too close to real life right now. But um, yeah, I just thought, oh, God, 
know, it was like, okay. It's not awesome, like, cool, no. but, like, it yeah. looked cool. And Alec Newman is so yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Not like, yay, he shot, shot <laughs> Well, and when he first came in, it was like, okay, he came in because his team is in, yes. his team is in trouble. Right. But then he had the bomb. No, he planned to do this all along. Why? You know, uh, uh, just, there's just, it's like the final nail. Like, there's no way to deny just how right. evil Pavel is. And, geez, Alec, you're so good in this role. Ugh. And my, like, come on, what the fuck? No special ops people are going to stop and look in the box while they're in the middle of the <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that seemed very in character for our team. I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's Wyatt, so. <laughs> but it was no, but it was like, don't you want a little sneaky peek? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was, it was stupid, but hysterical. It was stupid, oh. but it was funny. And I thought, yeah, no, it, it's, it seems apropos for our team. <laughs> let's hang around long enough yeah to get in big trouble yeah exactly don't, don't fuck it up yeah we finally have our blame wyatt moment yeah exactly i didn't even think of that we've, we've been waiting all season we knew we could count on you wyatt yeah right <laughs> <laughs> well and so lots of questions going forward you know my big one obviously what is the big thing that pavel is planning and then where does wyatt go from here you know uh, my two big things, or my questions, definitely, what is Pavel's big plan? Clearly, we know he's after a missile. So, what is going to be in that missile? And, hello, Coltrane. Where's Coltrane? Pavel's got him. Is Katrina going to live through all this? Oh, I hope so. Because Pavel is just bent on destroying everything. He wants her down, that's for sure. And I... Don't. <laughs> I like her. I know. I like her too. She's a good, good addition to the team. But even if she lives, I think like it could be hard to explain if she's back next season because she's a Russian agent. She's not. I mean, of course, you know, they have an American and a, you know, everybody and it strike back. It's a small world. <laughs> magic. It's our little Disney. <laughs> strike back magic. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, yeah. this is a disney episode. there you go all right neighbors that's all we have for you next up your behind the scenes facts from jack lothian and then interviews with military advisor paul bittis and composer scott shields Mebers, just as a late addition, we're so excited to say that we had a chance to talk to scott shields partner in crime fellow composer paul saunderson so enjoy that part of the interview we've got overwatch Jack's Facts coming in. All right, Mabers, we are here with your behind-the-scenes facts from showrunner and executive producer Jack Lothian. Wyatt came very close to, to having a mustache in his new life. Few people can pull off the Tom Selleck look, but we are pretty confident that Dan could do it. Without a doubt, it was one of the toughest decisions this season. What? A special thanks to our fantastic makeup and hair designer, Sajan Gillings and her team, who handled everything from buzz cuts to bullet wounds with skill and dedication. I, uh... No. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no. <laughs> I, you know, I could see Dan in, like, scruff, or even, like, 
mutton chops because I, you know, you know, I'm oh. like all Dan for Wolverine, but, but a, but a mustache. Oh, boy. Okay. Not me. <laughs> no, that was, that's a hard pass for me too. Thank you for making that very good decision. <laughs> okay. Eagle-eyed viewers might spot that only Coltrane and Chetri are seen outside in Hong Kong, both day and night. We couldn't move the entire production to a new country, so we sent a small splinter squad led by second unit awesome director Fraser McDonald woo -woo, off to film those scenes with Jamie and Verada. Ah, well, I'm not an eagle-eyed viewer, so I didn't notice that. And I didn't really, were they really in Hong Kong? I didn't. I well, I mean, obviously so. Malaysia. Okay. <laughs> the nightclub was built on a soundstage at Pinewood. It's loosely based on two real-life clubs in Hong Kong and Bangkok and was named the Sing Shan after the temple in Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. Unfortunately, some nameless writer and showrunner misspelled the name in the script, and that's what ended up on the neon sign. The club was designed... <laughs> that's amazing. The club was designed and built within the space of a week by designer Mike Gunn and his team, complete with bar, dance floor, VIP room, and wine-tasting cellar. It looked even better in real life. I love that. I mean, Mieber stuck. You I know, know, I love so. it. Oh my God, Jack. <laughs> That's just too funny. Nameless writer. Oh, so now we need to make another shirt. Welcome okay. to the. Oh my goodness. Okay. Okay. The fan dancers in the club were originally meant to finish halfway through the scene, but they looked so good that we kept them on. They quickly grabbed some umbrellas, came up with a new routine, and happily agreed to be blown up. <laughs> Strike Would you ladies like to be blown up on Strike Back? Yes. Hell yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I'm just saying there are two ladies who might like to be blown up in Croatia, you know. Yeah. Shots. I don't or... know them, but, you know. <laughs> the scene with Pavel and his gang in the underground car park was originally planned to be filmed outside, but, ter but a torrential storm rolled in and wouldn't leave. The rain was so heavy that the nearest possible structure was the underground car park, which... After a quick rewrite, turned out to be a much better location. Yeah, it worked great. Yeah, it was cool. The one-take action sequence, which we've been calling the one -er, in the shantytown was nicknamed the gauntlet in the script and was without a doubt one of the most exhausting but fun days on set, almost like live theater, with a few more pyrotechnics thrown in. A few more. A lot of directors would have buckled at the thought of doing such a sequence with barely a day's rehearsal, but not the legendary Bill Eagles. A special shout-out to our camera operator, Adi Visser, who had just joined the show, oh my God, really, and was an integral part in making the sequence work, and also to the random hen <laughs> that randomly ran out in front of a lid and then ran away from her, adding a welcome layer of drama to the proceedings. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, go hen! Woo! Oh, that's win. amazing that that cameraman, that that steady cam guy, did that. Yeah, and is not a veteran of the show because that. That was a hell of a long shot. That Man, wow, that you guys. Oh, I know you all thought it when you saw it. It was incredible. On me, back to the crib. Welcome back, Meebers. We are so excited, <laughs> and I mean so excited, with our next guest, Paul Bittis, the military tech advisor, the one person you've all been waiting for, outside of Alin, but. Uh, <laughs> We were pretty excited about that too. 
But um, this is definitely an interview we have been waiting for all season. And Paul Bittis has 24 years of global experience in the British military. And that's all he's going to say about that for reasons. <laughs> but after leaving the military, he, filmed his, he formed PB Military Tech Advisors and to Film and Television Limited. That's a mouthful, Paul. Um, and serves as military tech advisor to multiple productions not the least of which is Strike Back, um, but you've seen his work in a lot of productions, including an up, you'll see it in an upcoming uh, Wonder Woman film, but Catherine the Great, Vanity Fair, Peter Liu, Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Um, so lots of stuff that you don't even know that he's worked on, but he is here today to talk about Strike Back and we couldn't be more excited. Welcome to the sit rep, Paul. Hello, how are you doing? I'm a man of few words. So I'll, try and, I'll try and fill the gaps. <laughs> That's right. We have lots of questions to ask you. <laughs> lots and lots. Not the least of which is I think a lot of fans think that all a military tech advisor does is come on set and teach people how to use guns. But your role is touches on every aspect of making a, a film or a television series when it comes to action and the use of weapons and military tactics. So can you explain to fans what it is a military tech advisor actually does? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, you get in amongst every department. Um, so you start from uh, the actual script itself, like the writer's room, and you'll have a number of writers. You've got Jack and Nula uh, and Lawrence, and then you they'll be pushing these ideas backwards and forwards. And then every once in a while, they'll look at me and go, would that work? And I'll say yes or no. You know, you wouldn't have those weapons in that region, for example. You wouldn't use this weapon because it'd be easier to get these rounds through, through you know, Pakistan or something like that. So I'll give them advice on there and, and, and we'll give them ideas as well. You know, some mission ideas, some, some ways they can get from A to B. Uh, so it starts from there. Um, and then you'll get the scripts and then you'll start throwing them back to say, well, yeah, I mean, do this, do that. I would suggest, and remember, I'm, I'm an advisor. I can only suggest, I can't demand and stamp my feet. I do have a few battles and, you know, the battles I choose, I'll always win. Um, but, you know, the, you've got to you've got to remember it's, it's a programme. It's, it's not a documentary. So you've got to let Hollywood sort of uh, win sometimes. And then once you get onto the actual production itself, you uh, you then get amongst the costume, like you know, advising on how, you know, what to put on the body armor, trying to make it nice and simple. You know, what these guys would be wearing, and you know, putting a, a zip light on on them, you know, sort of a friend or foe identification sort of beacon, uh, and all these little bits, you know, belts and braces, where some people wouldn't even notice it and probably wouldn't even care, but you know, a lot of the vets will go, oh yeah, I like that, you know. I've had a couple of calls from mates last night saying, you know, who have just seen the, the uh, obviously the UK release. And they're like, yeah, well done, mate. That's, that's good. I like the, you know, the chamber check and all this. And then you go through to the training and you try to get as much training as you can. You can't always get everything you want. You put a training package together. But obviously, there's all, every production has its limitations um, on what you can do. So everything you'd like to do, you don't always get a chance to do that. So you have to try and grab people when you can. And then you're fighting against the other departments to get the time uh, of the cast who are being bounced from one end to the other, from costume to makeup to stunts to, you know, the dialogue, you know, rehearsing their dialogue. 
And then there's me there trying to grab them anytime I can, you know, come on, over here now, let's start getting a bit of gun through going, a bit of gun through. So, yeah, so it's, it's a lot, there's a lot involved. I didn't blow off there. I'm sitting on my gym thing at the moment and it's creaking. <laughs> so I'm in the man cave, so. <laughs> Your creaky man cave. Yeah, so that's, that's what that is. <laughs> So you have an episode, you know, in episode nine, which is when this will come out, is one of the most incredible scenes I think I've seen on Strike Back, the long one shot um, that they have running through the streets. And that has got to be, I mean, with so, you know, so many stunts, so many guns, so many, you know, coming around the corner and, and the way they happen. And how does going, planning something like that happen for you? It starts with the, the recce itself. So you know, with, with Bill Eagles um, and Shappers, we uh, we start, we look at the area first. And then Bill will say, right, we're going to have some enemy coming out here. We're going to have some, you know, really uh, big explosion here. Car coming down here. It's all going to be really great. And um, he'll say, Paul, what would you, you do? How would you take cover there? Um, now, originally what was going to happen was, you know, it was quite hot that day when we did the rehearsals. And... Uh, Paul was going to play, Paul Shapcock was going to play the character of Warren, being the team leader, and he had the other stunt guys. But um, I think Paul knew what was in store, and he just went, oh, Paul, could you uh, you do Warren's place? Because it would be easier, because you can do the tactics as well. And I went, oh, go on then. I sweated so much. I was completely piss-wet through with sweat. My trousers, it looked like a wet mistake. And Paul was just there, giggling. Um, so, yeah, so... We literally would go around and then we would say, look, it'd be really nice if we could have a piece of cover here so they could crash in here and wait until that, that threat's gone past, then start moving on. But you, also, you've got all the other moving parts to think about. You've got the, ca- the cameras, where the cameras going to be, how they're going to manoeuvre around. You know, there's a, a window there, there's reflection. Like, how are we going to make sure that the sound guy doesn't get caught in the camera? And so it was all of those different things. So it's a very difficult sequence to achieve, like, you know, one shot, one shot wonders and and so yeah it's, it's a really interesting and a very sort of uh you know lots of moving parts to consider where the, where the sound guys are going to put microphones you know where the where the effects guys are going to put you know script hits in the in the walls and how the enemy are going to come out and how they're going to get hit and you know then you've got one or two i think there was a, 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 a an extra lady who was who was to come out and start screaming and mm-hmm. you know we're acting too much away obviously um and making sure she was on the, you know, on the money when, when all this happens, because like I say, it's one shot take and, you know, one screw up, got to go back to number, you know, the beginning again. You can't do it in bias. So yeah, it's, it's very difficult shot. Very difficult. Well, it was brilliantly done. It's a shot that I felt like one, I mean, as a, as a viewer, your heart is like pounding. You feel like you're a part of the team. It's one that I think video game films have tried to do. Uh, because it gives you that they're trying to, you know, the illusion of being the player, but they always fail. It, it never works for me. But this, I mean, you really feel like you're you're right there with Nova and you're right there with them as going around the corners and stuff. It was just super well done. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I, I was I was really impressed when I when I saw it. But yeah, uh, it's and it's and it's because I don't normally give um, a lot of credit to the cast. I don't want to big their egos up during the shoot. <laughs> So, and I, and we I'm heard sure that. I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just be completely motionless and just sort of go, yeah, all right, that was good. You know, and, 
one. So there was there was a big, quite a funny one, and it's sort of uh, you know I have oh how do I do this? He goes oh I'll do it like that. He goes oh but that's how I did it. I went yeah but I did it more manly, and I just walked off. Yeah, um, but Warren caught me walking out of the video village after that take. He was looking at me, and I didn't realise he was he was watching me, but he was trying to watch my reaction. And I I let it slip. I let the mask slip because I sort of walked out like uh, Del Boy. Then if you know Del Boy out of Only Fools and Horses, never see it. Don't worry about it. But he, I walked out this guy. I was a bit cocky, a sort bit of a rooster. I think mean, oh, that was good. That and Warren clocked me and went. You like that, didn't you? Yeah. Well, there is so much to be proud of in that shot. And, you know, most viewers have no idea what a oneer is. And I think we've talked about that oneer almost, well, really since day one, because everyone connected to the show is so proud of it. And when we finally got to see it, it is so suspenseful and so stressful and so full of places where it could have gone wrong and didn't. And it's just amazing. And you know, I, I said to Kelsey, I'm like, man, if this doesn't get Emmy consideration, then we're we're starting a campaign because that's just a crazy, crazy good. <laughs> Phone dropped. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yes, yes we can. Hear you. Um, no, go ahead. No, I mean I got the cast together afterwards after we finished the that final bit. Uh, got you know Dan and and uh, um, Ellen and, and Warren. And I went. This is going to get remembered. You know this this is the dog's bollocks. Sorry. Um, I said this is going to get remembered. People are going to talk about this. You know like you know you get one shots on certain things, um, and people will use that as a reference to say let's copy that for their film. You know and they were they were sort of very pleased with that. You know they were pretty sort of stoked up with that one because it was the first time I gave them praise as well. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, when we talked to Jamie Bamber, he said that, uh, I guess, it's some particularly difficult thing that he'd done, and he looked over, and you were just like, what, it's not rocket science? And we were like, we cannot wait to talk to Paul. <laughs> well, that's the thing there. Uh, like, I mean, weapon handling, you know, weapon handling and, and weapon manipulation is not rocket science. It's not a ninja. You know, there's some people that try to make out as if it's some sort of, you know, secret society, but it's, it's basic. There's the enemy, point in that direction, kill him. That's it. That's your job. And that's why I tell the guys, I say, look, your job is to close in and kill the enemy. It's as simple as that. That's what you're taught as a soldier. And, yeah, that's it. It's basic. Easy peasy. Well, it's really not. And one, <laughs> one of the first things that we ever communicated with you about um, was the fact that the skills right from the first shot in this season were so obviously improved and I think it was probably noticed the first time Dan came on screen and you know was so much more comfortable with a weapon and it it last season it always looked like he was a guy holding a weapon and this season it's definitely a part of him when he's handling any weapon and you said that um, you had tailored the training to the character can you explain that a little bit more yeah um when I, I mean, when I, when I was approached by uh, Lawrence to uh, Lawrence Cochran Knight to to get on, you know, to, to help out on this on this season, um, I looked at the, you know, I watched. I'd never watched. Uh, I had to admit, I'd never watched Drive Back before. <gasps> I tend not to watch many war films anyway, so don't worry about it. Um, but then I, I went binge watched the, or they they sent me all the DVDs and I 
smash through them all. And for me, like when I train anyone, I always try to give them uh, an individual, I make them individual, their characters. Because people train, you know, you've got guys from, you know, there's, there's the Australian Army, the US Army, uh, and the British Army, and the Russian Army. So I wanted to train them as they would have been trained as recruits. But on the, on the other side is that, especially with Dan's character, Dan's character's, you know, he's, he's been working off, you know, off the grid, so to speak, with, you know, some, uh, private security firms. And, and so I said to Dan, I said, look, what I want to do is I want to introduce the car system to you. And the car system's like central access relock, which is a system that was developed by a guy called Paul Castle, who was a British security contractor in Iraq. And he realized that there was, there was a need for a very close combat pistol skill that had everything very close to the body. So you weren't pointing out, presenting your pistol to the enemy, a potential enemy that's hiding around a corner. Um, so I said, like, I want you to concentrate on that skill and I'm going to keep on drilling you in holding that weapon. And, and you, get, you know, you get some people going, oh, he's holding the weapon by the side like a gangster. Well, he's not. He's actually got both hands on that weapon. You know, and, and I... I, that was a drill that I, you know, I mean, the, the one-handed sided weapon, I, I had to sort of break that out of one or two of the cast members that, that was doing it from the last season. And I said, don't do that. Try, you know, and it, it, eventually I managed to get them holding their weapons correctly. But with Dan, it had to be the car system all the time. And, and sometimes Dan would go back into that one. So that, that, was, that was my one with Dan. And also, like, with, with like Warren, I said, look, you are more... You know, you're old school, you're taught by old school, and I want you to try and just continue doing that. Every now and again, you might use that car system because it's you're in a very close environment. You're, you're very close up with people, but predominantly you're going to be using the standard sort of um, sort of weaver or isosceles stance. But then I also introduced them the, the differences between uh, advanced isosceles and, and uh, standard isosceles, which is a start, you know, which is how you're holding your weapons will be different if you've got body armor on. But if you don't have body armor on, you will actually turn your body to the side of, of a, a threat, where if you've got body armor, you'll present the plate to the threat, if that makes sense. So I was giving them all these different drills and, and transition drills. Um, and then with um, Yasmin, you know, Yasmin's character, she's, she's Russian. She's very, you know, live in a, in a, in a sort of... Um, in her character, I said, look, you know, you want to be more like a ballerina, the way you're drawing your weapon. So I wanted her to be a side drawer, you know, draw it from the side, from the opposite angle, and be very sort of ballerina-like, which uh, I'm no, I'm no ballerina, you know, no ballerina. So I just had to do that with my arms. That was it. But uh, yeah, so I, I tried to make them all individual and, and take them away. And, you know, with um, Alec as well, you know, trained, you know, Russian soldier, I wanted them to manipulate the AK-74s like a Russian would do, which is completely different to, you know, you can tell a Western to an Eastern soldier with the way they, they cock an AK-47. It's different. You do it different. You do it how you were taught on your original weapon. So it was all different things I put into the mix. I hope that answered that one. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that was a great answer. And that, you know, it's it really is such a, a big change from last season. and And we're just so impressed. And I think one of the things that struck me when we were interviewing Dan and he was talking about some of the guns, he did sort of like this little hand motion that my next door neighbor is, is former special forces as well. And when he tells stories about guns, he does it sort of this like kind of diagonal, like up to the side kind of, you know, f half fist, half closed kind of 
movement. I don't know how to describe it other than that. But anyways, is this movement that Dan did that exact thing, and it's very different than when civilians talk about guns and sort of like point their fingers or like you know act like it's like directly in front of them. And it was just so. I thought it's so ingrained in him now the the training yeah. and the and the way that even in his stories he makes these you know gestures unconsciously. It's just brilliant. And so. I, I know um, Kim had actually asked us to ask you how many hours on average you spend training with them. Uh, I mean, it's, it, there was a lot of um, constraints we had on us with the training side of it because it took a while before we could get the weapons out because of the, the red tape um, and the hoops that the armourers had to go through to get the weapons into country. So that was really frustrating because what I wanted to do, I couldn't do. So I had to try and get them anytime I could, you know, get them on the, onto, the, onto the gun range and start drilling them and drilling them, then all of a sudden they'd be taken away. So, you know, it, it, there was quite a few hours that we, we did quite a bit, and I was taking them through room clearance drills, you know, how, how to, you know, talking to, uh, talking to them about the, what the fatal funnel was um, um, and the reason why you have to clear from the outside, then you move in, you run the walls, you collapse your sectors, uh, you know, so all that, you know, some of the stuff was still quite fresh, you know, they, they, they wasn't aware of the, some of these things that I was teaching them. So uh, I think I filled a lot of gaps, which they probably weren't aware of as much when they, was, when they started that first season. So yeah, I mean, the training was just, it was continuous right the way through. Every day was a training day. So they would come on set and we'd say, right, come on, let's go and do something. Uh, and, and especially Dan, Dan was always, you know, he'd be sat on his backside with a magazine and a Glock and he'd be, you know, giving, um, you know, sort of, uh, and, and helping out other, other sort of less, less experienced cast members by, you know, playing a game with chuck the magazine and, you know, tossing the magazine between each other. So, um, but yeah, and Dan's like, you know, he, he was training hard before you know, we even met as well. So, you know, in fact, all they all were. So. Well, like we said, the difference was obvious immediately and it just keeps getting better throughout the season. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to switch focus a little bit because I know as as we talked about before as the military tech advisor you pretty much have your hand in every aspect of the show one of which is stunts and I'm interested in how you work with the stunt coordinators and the the stunt team to make it military real when they're pulling these stunts off yeah I mean with, with all shows that I've worked in you always work very closely with the stunt coordinator and, and the stunt teams yeah, so I'll, I'll be taking the guys to one side as well, and I'll be giving them training. I'll be teaching them how to breach and how to, you know, stack and breach into buildings and um, and how to do combat and, uh, like, the difference between a combat and, and a, um, a tactical magazine change, which was another thing I introduced with the guys as well. You know, they hadn't done it before. But, you know, Paul say, oh, you know, can we do it like that? Or Thomas, you know, um, he's 2IC. So well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, do it. You know, you're killing the guy. Uh, would you do it like that? Oh, no, I'll just stab him in the eye with a pencil. But we can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it's, so we will, they'll do this, that, the other. They'll look at me and go, would that work? Yeah, do it. Smash. So we all work and bounce off each other. And, and the same, you know, the same guys. You know, I mean, I'll say, oh, let's do this. But then I'll stop short and go, Paul, would you be happy if I, if I suggested that? You know? Because obviously he's got to take into account what his guys are able to do and what can't do, and then he'll just say, "Yeah, yeah, let's go for it." Yeah. So it's it's a everybody all works together, and it's one of the. I mean, I can say that all the all the cast and crew, 
it's probably one of the tightest teams I've ever worked with. Yes, and I've worked with a lot of different you know crews in, in my time. That doesn't surprise us at all <laughs> that they're so tight um, because you can see the relationships that are built you know, not just the cast, but but everyone connected with the show is obviously very tightly connected on, you know, during filming and outside of filming as well. So, yeah. Will you be connected with the show next season? Been asked. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. All right, then. Uh, then I'm gonna. I'll finish. They want me back, so they want me back. So they want you back. Well, the ball's in your court. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, we, we will cross our fingers and say a little prayer. Um, I have an episode seven question, actually, that was prompted by my husband, who's in the military, talking about the night vision scene. He and I, so this is, a, I guess, a tactical question or a, for you. He was talking about how when they train with the night vision, he's like, I, I can't even imagine the muzzle flashes. They would, they would blind you. So, but I was like, but I mean, they have to use them in combat. So I, I'm wondering how that works with using the night vision and in real life, I guess, when shooting and muzzle flashes and all that. It doesn't have really that much effect. It's, it's, it's a very, um, the light is not as uh, similar to if you put a bright light on, for example. You put a bright light on, it's just going to completely flood the MVGs. But with the, with, and the muzzle flash is, you know, you have, like as well as suppressors, you also have your, your flash eliminator. It's not really going to make that much difference. MBGs are being used on operations, and if they, you know, if, if a weapon was going to blind you, then you just wouldn't use it. They're obviously used for a reason, but they they wouldn't have much effect on you that way. Okay, that's what I figured. I was like, I mean, I'm sure they can't be like closing their eyes. <laughs> I was like, that would be terrible yeah. for like actual operations. So thank you. Yeah, no, you, you, just use, you just wouldn't use MBGs if that was the case. We all use them. Uh, I've still got. What should say that? So. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> since Kelsey brought up real life versus what we see on TV or um, or in the movies, can you just let people know that talk about silencers and how they really aren't all that silencing, and that it's just sort of movie magic, but in the real world, what a silencer does. Yes, suppressor. It, it, it's it, it suppresses a certain amount of of sound waves from uh, you know a lot further away. So the actual in you know the the, the very sort of um, for the vicinity of where that shot is being taken, you're going to hear it. It's going to be it's going to sound the same as a normal normal round. So all this boom, 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 that's just Hollywood. It's where the sound it, it it stops the sound from traveling further afield. Which is, which is then mean you know it doesn't alert people that are further afield to then start co converging on where that gunfire is taken. So the actual place itself where it's taken, you know, and probably a hundred meters out, you're still going to hear that round as a normal round. It's further afield that you you don't hear it as much. It's muffled slightly more. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have a couple of fan questions for you. Kim asked, you've worked on many diverse projects and time periods. Is there a certain time period that you particularly enjoy working with? I mean, no, this, I love this stuff. You know, like I say, I, when I finished this, I had six days off. Then I went on Catherine the Great with uh, uh, Helen, Helen Mirren film. And that was Napoleonic. Uh, and I've done loads of, you know, I mean, I, I, I did War and Peace. Uh, that was my first big sort of uh, job. 
and that was I got three days notice to go out to Lithuania and train 500 extras in Napoleonic wow. tactics which I'd never done before I mean I, I, I was rubbish at school so I had to <laughs> learn all the stuff very quickly and then put a training program together and then train all these guys in the tactics and, and uh, as they were trained back in the day so when I got back from doing six months of what I really like I then went on this job and I'm, I'm stood in front of sort of 200 extras with a musket in my hand going through the drills and my sort of shoulders just went oh. yeah don't get me wrong I like it I still enjoy it but the modern day stuff is what I like you know um it's easier as well <laughs> <laughs> because you get like Napoleonic stuff you get a lot of um who's that guy in the Simpsons the computer is it the computer guy the computer nerd you know, that's always, oh, that was wrong because the, uh, the colour green was all yes. the same green. <laughs> this has really disappointed me and uh, ruined my expectations of the show. I will not be watching again. And you get loads of people like that. You know, they do. Look, mate, it's a drama, not a documentary. Get over it. Yeah. Would you fuck the Waterloo? No. Right, well, fuck off then. Yeah. <laughs> you mean like fans who go, hey, Paul, was that a... Was that a 50? Because they said 50. It doesn't sound like it didn't look like a 50. Oh, you mean fans oh, like that? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but that was me. That was me. That's something that was done apparently down during the ADR. Where they just gone, oh, yeah, that's it. If they'd asked me, I could have told them, that's an M60. Yeah. So when I heard that, I sort of went, no. <laughs> Terrible so fans. Had, God. No, the only thing I can't be on top of is, is when they do the edit stuff, It's unfortunately. And, and like the guys, you know, like uh, Ellen and, and Dan were like, oh, yeah, we get really pissed off because we, you know, we get, you know, the last season they were saying, oh, they never did mag changes. They always had Hollywood mag changes. And I said, said to them, I said, look, during the dialogue, do a combat magazine change or a tactical magazine change. Do it then because then it'll be harder for them to take it out, which they did do. And you managed to, you know, you get to see some magazine changes stuff so you know it's yeah but yeah there you go <laughs> so i'm intrigued by you what is the difference between a tactical and a combat magazine change right so tactical magazine change is when you're you know as a soldier you shouldn't have an idea of how much you've got in your magazine and what you don't want is a dead man's click you know you, you don't want to start you know just as you start to engage someone boom boom weapon fires weapon stops which then means you're gonna have to immediately go to your shawl and do a transition very quickly a tactical magazine change is uh, a low in the battle. You get down behind some cover, and then you just quickly get the magazine out, the fresh magazine out, hit the hit the uh, magazine release button, and then feed the next one in, which means you don't have to chamber the round because there's a round already chambered. Combat magazine change is basically magazine fire, you know, weapon fires, weapon stops, check. You're out of that. You have no no rounds in the magazine, no rounds in the chamber. So you've got to go through a, a complete magazine. Uh, change and recycle the weapons. So that takes just a slightly bit more time. So that's all that is. It's just different, different types of changes. Was there anything in this season that you can talk about that you wish, that, you know, Hollywood constraints, if you will, you know, required something that you're like, I really wish I'd been able to do this thing differently because it would be more accurate. Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's always stuff, you know, like you know, on um, when they did a road crossing. I said, look, you know, you need to do like a proper obstacle crossing. So the road is an obstacle and there's a way in which you go around that. And I, 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 to, I mean, Steve Shield, like, you know, brilliant guy, 
and I had to explain the reason why you do this. And he goes, right, okay, let's do that. But then there's other things like, I said, like, you know, why are you driving in? Why not parachuting? You know, trying to get a jump in. I mean, like the Hanto building, I wanted them to jump on the roof. That would have been really good. They infilled onto the roof, jumped on, gone down, done their business, obviously tried to come up, right, let's get back, let's get the rigs, let's base jump off. But um, didn't want to do that. So uh, you go. I keep on trying to say, well, why don't we do your parachute jump? New every, every time I say it, she just looks at me and goes, no. I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, they've done them in <laughs> the past. Yeah, I know, I know. I just keep on trying to introduce a bit of airborne into the show. But, you know, there you go. <laughs> Scott and Stonebridge did them all the time, and I can imagine that Alin is like, "Let me do it." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They should, they should do one. I reckon. I reckon they'll do one next season. All right, we'll to. start a campaign. Let <laughs> them <laughs> jump. Let them jump. <laughs> <laughs> Script consistency. It, it's been significantly better this season um, over last season, and I know that that's also a part of um, the military tech advisors purview is script consistency. And I'm wondering how in advance do you get the scripts to be able to advise on that? Or is that yet another thing on the fly in Strike Back? No, you know, I, I do get I do get them. Um, and, I, and I get asked to make comments and, and do some notes. So I'll put some notes. Some of those notes will get, you know, they'll go, yeah, let's do that. But then as others, uh, they'll, you know, because it doesn't tell the story or maybe there is a certain section that, oh, no, we don't want to do it that way. We want to do it this way because this is how we want to do it. So, I mean, I, I, I introduce different things, especially on the surveillance side, because you know, um, on how you actually conduct a surveillance operation. And But then it would have been too, it would have been a surveillance documentary, you know, and how the maps, you know, and how you relay the information over the radio. Um, and I, there was a thing with the radio, the call signs, and how you identify your target. You don't call it a target. You call it, you know, if he's a male, you call him an alpha. If it's a female, it's an echo, echo one or alpha one, now heading to uh, point blue four. And I'd, I'd be giving them all this sort of references on how they how they would do that and making sure that they kept their call signs, you know, sort of, you know, in with their characters. You know, like I, I made I made Warren the team lead. I said he should be the TL, you know, during the, mm -hmm. during the, uh, the scripting and, and, the, and the missions as well. You know, I said about the reason why you would take a tower out in the jungle. You know, which was part of the mission, which is like they're using VHF uh, secure communications in the jungle. And, and normally in the jungle, you use HF communications because of the tree canopy and, and the, uh, how difficult it is to get a signal, an omnidirectional signal to A to B. So you use HF because you, you bounce the HF off the ionosphere to your receiving uh, station. So I said that if you take out the highest point, that's then going to force that rebro, which is what you call them you have in the jungle. You're going to force that the enemy to then revert to a less secure communications that then can be direct found by uh, V, you know, Chetri, uh, Chetters. Um, so her, she would be able to direct find where it's coming from and then you'd know where the enemy is and where to strike. So I gave, I'll give them ideas like that. Yeah, that was a really cool detail and that blowing the tower was really fun. So kudos. Yeah. That was great. So I have a question. I mean, you have you have five boys. So bravo. Uh, <laughs> you know, being away. I mean, obviously, having been in the military, you're used to you know sort of deploying and all these things. But being away in Malaysia for six months, you know, how does that work with with having you know a family back home? Because I know that's been one thing some of the cast have said was was difficult about the shooting. So what? <laughs> it's, it's easy, really. Just 
it's, it's not too, but you know, if anything, it's like, yeah, go on, piss off out on the feet. Under the feet. Like, cause I get, if I, if I get so bored sometimes, I go like, why don't you go away and do a film or something? Or go and follow something. So when I, I do private investigation as well, so um, not long before I got this job, when I got told it got green lit, I was actually following a bloke around London um, who was up to no good, which is quite funny. So I'm like, I don't have to do this anymore. I'm going to go off to Malaysia instead. Um, but yeah, so and, and you know, just as long as you communicate, you know, um, that, that's you know, and then you, you obviously you, you drag the long hair general out for a month. Yeah. It's easy, it's, it's just, yeah, the boy, I've got all my, all my boys are growing up. Obviously, my, my youngest boy is disabled, isn't he? He's got cerebral palsy. Um, they all muck in, to, to, you know, and look after him. So that lets Debbie come away and, and sort of see, you know, where, where, you know, when I was deployed, she couldn't exactly come out and see the places. Now she gets a chance to do it. So, you know, got her out there to Malaysia and then I took her out to Lithuania. Uh, so, yeah, get to see different things. That's great. So I want to tell you that... <laughs> you know, like two months ago or whatever, when we talked to Jack uh, for our preseason interview, when we were done, we asked him if he had any questions or prompts that he could give us on, you know, on st or stories you know, for people uh, that we were going to be interviewing. And he only gave us one, and it was odd. And so <laughs> we're, we're wondering if you would share with us why Jack would say, ask Paul about Mickey Mouse. Oh, yeah, I'll go. I got banned from Disney World for life. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't Mickey Mouse, it was Pluto. Um, it, was, I, it was Pluto, is that what you said? Pluto. <laughs> I, I found him um, and I put him on his backside because he wouldn't tell me how much money he made. I was very drunk at the time. I was a young 20 <laughs> And I just asked him and he didn't tell me. And so my mate next to me, who was a jock lad, went, tell us so I bust your bush. And... Uh, Pluto put his hands on his eyes, shook his legs, and when he took him away, I just went boom like that and put him on his backside. Then, oh. then we got arrested by the Disney police and told that we're uh, barred from Disney World for life. So that was it, really. <laughs> okay, well, you know that Pluto can't talk, right? He's a dog. When we was in the Disney cell, um, they kept on saying, I'll wait to see if Pluto's going to press charges. And uh, they just kept on calling him Pluto. My mate got a bit... We was, we was in there for quite a few hours. We were just drinking loads of coffee to try and sober up. And then Stu just went, is Pluto going to press charges or what? And I'm just like holding my head and going, oh, no, this is getting worse. But then they came in and goes, look, guys, we're ex-military. We know what it's like. Just just don't do it again. And we went, no, all right, we won't. Yeah, but you're banned from life. We went, yeah, no problems. And then we waited outside the gates. And my other mates, they came they came and looked at us. And uh, one of them was a Geordie. And he went, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you'd get in trouble again. Like that. <laughs> shirt so we can get back in. So we swapped shirts and we got back in. So, uh, <laughs> it was a typical strike back in the film. Yeah. I'm like that. That needs to be like a, in a season of strike back. <laughs> like exactly. That's... that's exactly what I was thinking. Oh my God. Oh. Up Pluto. <laughs> that's just wrong ball. Oh, what that's... was funny, it was Mickey Mouse that tried to run away. She was in the background. She had the Jackman's <laughs> outfit on and she had these big, massive feet. So she was trying to go like this, like to run off. That was the bit I remember. That was quite funny. That was, uh... <laughs> then it was like, woo! Then it was on the Disney car. The Disney police getting arrested. <laughs> <With> Disney... <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you. So are the Disney, <laughs> thank you for are the Disney police, like, in costume, too? Oh, no, no. Okay, if you watched all of the seasons of Strike Back, then you're familiar with Philip Winchester and the Stonebridge character. And um, the question that we've been asking everyone this season that we got from Philip Winchester, because as he talked about and how everyone has talked about um, that we've interviewed, that working on Strike Back is definitely a marathon. And as fun as it is, you absolutely go through a lot of shit together. So what he, when he's talking to people about Strike Back, he likes to find out. And so we like to find out now um, what the high points of your season were and then what the low points were, maybe in addition to being in Disney jail. Um, the high point was that, that continuous shot, because that was the that was a dog's nads that that was just like boom yeah you nailed it and everything was put together so they, they did everything you know it, it right down to you know right that guy you've, you, you've smashed him take his weapon off him start stripping him of his ammunition start passing the ammunition around you know as a team and and i don't know whether that made the cut but it was all those different elements that they did and that made me i was really proud when i saw it because i and they knew i was i just went yeah you nailed that that was yeah, you, I didn't tell him airborne until the, until like the rap party. What I can remember oh, of it. Oh wow! Um, I just went. I gave it. I, in fact, I gave her. She, she nearly burst into tears. I gave her a set of wings, which is the wings you have to earn. It's, it's called the BBC, the Blue Badge of Courage, and it's not something given out lightly. And I went, there you go, you made airborne, and she just went, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, um, oh wow, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's something you give out lightly. So that, that, that for me was a high point. And obviously, like I said, Warren called me walking out of the video village, sort of chest pumped out going, jobs are good. And like, you know, boom. And uh, he knew that they nailed it. So that for me was the high point. And um, the low point was every hotel we went to, the gym only had 25 kilo dumbbells, which was really upsetting. I had to work with just 25 kilo dumbbells I'm like, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> that was the low point. So I had, to, I had to try and find different ways of training and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, that's, Paul, that's brilliant. We're not at Xfil. Stay with us at the crib. In every film or TV show that you see, all of the stunts, the dialogue, the sets, all of it would be literally be almost nothing without the music. The score is the backbone, the emotional intent, the intensity, the suspension. Everything comes from the swell of the music that undergirds it. And so we are so excited to be bringing you two men who have been composing for Strike Back since 2010, Scott Shields and Paul Saunderson. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you for having us. This was really an unexpected last minute treat. So thank you guys so much. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. We, we love you guys. So we wanted kind of, if you could give us a basic overview of the process for you when you're scoring an episode, how that sort of happens and in what order it happens. We don't really know anything except that we love the final product. Well, it's, it's um, over the course of Strike Back, things have uh, they've moved and changed and the way we started is not necessarily the way we are now when strike by started we had a very different approach it was orchestral there was a very british stiff upper lip feel to it that was um done with a large 
brass section recorded in mm. a studio called British Grove in the UK. And what we did was we recorded a bunch of that and that became the themes that we used throughout the show. As the show progressed and, and then there was a, an, an American character was introduced, so it became more a half British, half American collaboration from them, the music had to change as well. So I felt that the music had to take on more of a... What, what I was doing then was I was kind of treating Stonebridge with a very stiff upper lip. We are military, and, and Scott was more rock and roll. He was like the rock and roll American character. I know it's a little bit stereotypical, but but that was the way we approached it to begin with. Mm-hmm. Over time, the show has kind of evolved to be. I guess the show became more uh, in the style of the shoot, like in the show itself, became more outlandish, more I guess n- not so American, but musically it kind of went more rock and roll and and became more modern in its style, you know, leaving behind yeah. the kind of orchestral traits. And so... I think the peak of that, around about season four, I don't know, season four, season five, was really the peak of the, the rock and roll. I mean, it was like quite track-based, it was quite musical. Rather than it being scory, it was a piece of music that would come in and it would be bold and big and brash. And when we would play that piece of music for what it was. This season... For example, we have progressed more to sort of we've taken because of the way the script has been written and, mm. and the visuals have come out, we've tended to take more of a filmic approach to it. I guess yeah, slightly more sort of cinematic, I guess, angle on in terms of even like thematics we're using or just the approach, just longer overarching and just more scory. Things coming back again and repeating and you know, there's a, a few little motifs that you'll hear, like the missile theme. Dee. And the, the, the strike back, when the guys are on board. You know, it's not so much, whereas before that might have been rock and roll guitars when you saw the guys. You know, now we're, we're not sort of hitting it quite so hard, if you like. I mean, at the beginning of the process, when it, like every episode, we kind of work in blocks of two. And the, as you can tell, the uh, stories are, they're always, so it's kind of like five blocks. Um, it's like five individual yeah. movies, really. And so we right. always work in these sections. Um, so at the beginning of the process, we would get, a, you know, we can be get maybe get set a cut before it's finally cut, and it will have, you know, maybe bits of music from Strike Back from previous uh, seasons, and then we would watch it, and then we'd go in for a meeting, like a spotting session, uh, where we sit with the director, producers, we talk about what's working, what's not working, how can we, um, I don't know bring out something more than uh like it's very difficult with temp music to really convey what you're trying to do but often you get an idea and so when we watch and we talk about basically all the way through the ins and outs of where music's going to start how can we make this better and then we tend to take that away and then we we work on it for a few weeks coming up with different obviously new characters different vibes obviously location changes what I was trying to say is that it's a long-running series, right? So the music has to be recognisable from season to season. Although locations change, situations change, and characters come and go. So we have to modernise it, but still have a, a source of series identity, if you like. That's, I think that's what the technical term is. There has to be an identity. So this show is done in a, such a way where we have five different directors, four maybe four different directors, um, one at the top and one at the tail and then three in between 
So part of my job and, and Paul's job is to, to sort of come pull all the ideas together and bind them in a way that keeps the series identity. So, you know, it's not happening so much now because what happens, because it's been running for such a long time, we've had pretty much every eventuality has been covered in the music. We've done something kind of similar that the editors can look to and go, well, something like this. And we'll go, right, okay, yeah, so we'll do a new thing that's that goes up here, down here, up here. You know, they, they kind of make a roadmap for us, and we then change that to fit the yeah. situations and the characters. And that's kind of the way you have to do it with a, a long-running series. If we were to make it different music every time, you know, people wouldn't be able to, their ears wouldn't, perk up at the right times. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be able to relate to it in the same way that... It needs to sound like they go, oh, yeah, it's a strike yeah, back. strike back. You know, for example... Like, you go, yeah, you want to kick ass here. And yeah, like, when, when the guys get the upper hand, for example, you always hear, down, down, you know, this, this theme that strike back are coming. You always know that no matter what's going on around about it, when that happens, right, okay, the guys have got the upper hand. The guys are moving in, into action. <laughs> so there's always that kind of yeah. thing. So there's a, there's a kind of a, a process of blending and changing and yeah. blending and changing. It's a bit of a balancing act yeah. to try and keep it familiar but different. Yeah, that's, that's the, the key. That's yeah. Same but different. Same but different. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good that you, that you mentioned that because I, I had messaged you about the similarities in the music between a scene in um, season uh, or five or and and this season the north korean running through the maze scene with scott and stonebridge and lena and the bowling alley fight and that they sounded very similar and yet you said this was all new music um well, so yeah. it had me thinking for a while well <laughs> it couldn't be because paul wrote that cue yeah and paul didn't work on season four or five whatever it was <laughs> Paul was only, it wasn't so involved at that, on that season, so. I guess sometimes, you know, we're like, if you're doing an action cue, sometimes there's only so many ways. Well, on second be, listen, you know, it was obviously I mean, very different. Well, it had that same sort of drive and same sort of um, percussion yeah. approach to it. Yeah. But, well, it, but it's just more yeah. stripped down for the bowling alley. It was just, it was definitely just percussion, so. It was brilliant. A lot of that was done after it was written. We did a lot of that stripping out in the dub. You know, when we, yeah. when, we when we sit and do the final touches, when we all sit and put like all the everything that's done post production comes together in a big dubbing theatre, and we all sit and we we listen to it. What we had written mm. felt a little bit heavy handed, a bit too musical, a bit too much for what was going on. And with all the added sound effects and extras that we don't, we're not privy to at, at the time of writing the music, once we hear it with that all on going, all all on board, then we go, well, do you know what? We don't actually need all that music. You know, we we need something to drive it, but we don't need it to be mm. quite so full and and filling up so much of the screen because the screen now has all this additional side effect uh, sound effects going on. So we don't need to fill up so much space, if you like. It's quite an interesting point, that, actually, um, in terms of the process of, you know, when you, from composing the music right at the beginning to what you end up with, as Scott mentioned. So we work to, uh, you know, we've got a cut and we're mainly working to 
like maybe a mono dialogue track that's unfinished sound effects, uh, you know, very rudimental. Uh, and uh, then, you know, we have our meetings and we, we're uh, signing off the music. So, you know, you, you've got this action scene where you need to really amp up the action to come, I guess, to get the, you know, the cue signed off or, you know, you do what you feel is right. And, you know, this is like loss of many sound effects and you get in the dub and then suddenly this, this uh, void has been filled with surround sound of so much stuff that yeah. not only frequency... Your effects guy's had a chance to have a go on mm. it. He's put all his touches into it. Yeah. Everybody's got their stuff on it. And, you know, suddenly you go, okay, yeah. go back a bit here. Totally. And sometimes it's been, you kind of... Because when we, we deliver the music, we deliver the music in a set of stems. So mm. we... They, you know, they have flexibility to just be like, okay, let's just hear the percussion, for example, or let's just hear the bass elements, or let's just hear the, the high elements. And making those decisions in the dub, you know, it can be quite important because, you know, you don't want to just get too. I mean, Strapback is very so much gunfire. It's very chaotic in its sound anyway. It, we call it action fatigue. <laughs> yeah, and it can come from can come from different sources. It's not always yeah. just music. But sometimes we just cut out music, but like, yeah. hey, well, let's try it without even, because you feel worried even that when you when you're in a spotting session with like uh, a big gunfight going on, which is basically coming out of a mono channel, think is will this suffice? Just like will it hold up? And then you're in the dubbing theatre and you think, yeah, like we've built up the tension, ramping up, and suddenly it's just like so much stuff going on, and then we just. It's sometimes yeah. a lot more impactive to, to yeah. leave the space and just have the gunfire and just come out and be silent. Pieces can be as important as the music. Mm, totally. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, this is actually, we had a fan question from at the Uber fan who wanted to know, and I feel like this is related to how you address or what inspires you the difference between scoring for an action scene and an, uh, an emotional scene and how you approach the, the different processes in approaching those. Okay, you want to talk technical? <laughs> <laughs> well, just be told, uh, speaking personally, there is no, I'm, I'm not going to say there's, a, there's a, a structured way of doing it. I personally score a lot by feel. So I will be, I'll get myself a palette of sounds that I think are good and appropriate. And I'll play around, and that won't work. <laughs> and I'll throw them all away, and I'll get myself some more sounds. I'm like, okay, that's still not working. So then I'll get a little loop, and it's, and just when you've finally pulled the last hair in your head out of your head, and you're totally bald, and you're sitting there going, I'm this for every scenario. Pretty much most of them. Right, I can't do this. I'll phone Paul. I'll go, Paul, can you take this cue? No, come on, I'm busy. I'm doing this one. So I have to go back and do it again. And then suddenly I'll find a little sound that just, it's just a little loop that just goes, and it just does something interesting. And it makes my ears go, oh, right, okay. That's the way to do it. So, okay, action scenes and, and underscore scenes are very different. But what I'm trying to say is there's no deeply thought out process to it. You know, we, we tackle things kind of on a as-they-come basis, if you like. Action scenes are kind of, they're led. I think, I think with action scenes, what I think, you know, when, uh, I don't know, 
I'm, 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 hopefully I'm speaking for the both of us on this part, but... Yeah, speaking for you, anyway. <laughs> uh, well, you know, with an action scene, obviously you kind of say you've got like a three-minute scene or I've, there's, there's been some long in the here in the history of Strava some seven minute long sequences I remember oh god it was relentless so um, I usually <laughs> come so I'm always like yeah I don't, just I don't give me the that. action uh, I, I quite enjoy it uh, like for me doing an action scene I kind of focus on kind of riff based style things and so I would like look over the entire scene try and break it up into sections because you you know you want an action scene to always like get you off the guard, so you can't just stick with a riff and just do that. Yeah, remainder. You don't, want to, don't want to feel too yeah. comfortable. Um, weird time signatures as well. I love like really strange thing like seven four or like five four because it's always it's quite tense because he's always if someone's like listening you, you can't just count one two three four one you know it's always like I feel skipping. An action scene at all. And the good thing about like. You're getting too musical about it, but like if you've got something in a five four or a seven four, action scenes are always like you want to hit cuts. You're never ever doing it on the beat, so you can always throw in like a two. Like isn't like you can skip a beat, and you never really notice because the beat's all off anyway. And so it kind of creates a lot of tension and just doing lots of riff based things. I always find that also gets you a long way uh, before you get bored of what you're hearing, and so it binds you a longer time. But with like emotional sort of stuff. I yeah, think I'm emo guy, <laughs> but like it, <laughs> guy, but I've grown up. But it is about the emo. I think like you know Scott's saying like you just feel it. it it's it's a different. It's you know it's like when you talk about music or how you do it. It's it's kind of an emotional thing, and you're listening to the dialogue. You're connecting with the characters, and then you just uh it's like saying, oh, how did you write that piece of music? And you're like, I don't know, it just kind of came to me. But you <laughs> Just ended up there. You know, like, the dialogue is like the top line and you're sort of supporting the action that's kind of going kind on. Of playing in between, yeah. not getting in the way too much, playing the right chords, playing the right sort of emotions. Yes, we, we work very differently. Paul's very fast <laughs> and, um, and gets, a lot of, gets a lot of stuff done. <laughs> Whereas I can just patient, is he? Over things and over and over and over, and just sitting and listening and listening. So it's the minutiae of detail that I'm sort of tweaking and getting involved in, and, and you know. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what the relevance of was for saying that, but <laughs> going over and over and over and making such small changes that you would never really notice them, but at the end you go, ah, okay, yeah, that works. Whereas, yeah, before it, it, yeah. it would still have been roughly the same piece of music, but it's the spacing and just the, the placement of the events and things that make it and, makes it either yeah. annoying or, or work. It either gets in yeah. the way and, and becomes noticeable, which you don't want, or it plays along nicely yeah. and it sits in its place. I think that's what I was trying to explain. I think that kind of leads quite on to, um, in terms of the nature of the music of Strike Back, and how we approach it, it's a very, very heavily production uh, in terms of we spend a long time producing the, you know, the music and uh, it's not like, um, how to say it, like when you're composing, you know, we don't just, ah, oh, a piano, that'll do. Like we, we spend a long time sculpting the sounds that we're using and also making. And so when Scott's saying he's spending a long time on something, it's like, a sound that 
we've made trying to give it an identity something that someone else doesn't have and it's all you know and sonically just it's very heavy on the production and we kind of are quite well i'd say we're quite proud of how it sounds and the production element of just the music the, the sounds that we're using and, and creating um it's quite a big part of it and it's i mean some of the stuff is huge as you know <laughs> in strike back um, and some of the stuff comes from the most unusual yeah. instruments that you could ever imagine like for example there's some really funny instruments i'll let scott yeah. tell you about these instruments i gotta tell you guys this is great because so far you have answered every question that i've thought of as we're speaking like, we need to sit back they know exactly what we're going to ask so, so give us an example of easiest, sound. yeah like the easiest interview ever it's amazing oh yeah that's a yeah a, a duologue is that even a thing yeah yeah. So, for example, we started we started this process when when Paul. Okay, let's go back. <laughs> go back. Can I? I just need to tell you that when you were talking about how you how you create the music, Scott, I'm sitting here thinking this is exactly how I watch it. That I break <laughs> it down into because I'll watch an episode twenty times and I break it all down into its little pieces. So to know that you, that's how you make the music, oh, yeah. it's like making my little behind the scenes heart just all. See, I connect with Paul because I'm like, let's get it done. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. I know, yeah. We're break this into two separate interviews now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, let, me re, let me backtrack a little bit. The team, the music team has shrunk. It used to be bigger. There used to be a lot more people involved. I used to have a lot bigger team. And what would happen was people would use people to play to their strengths. Like if somebody was particularly good at an element of programming, they would do a certain aspect of it. If somebody was good at, you know, I would, I would have maybe three or four people working on the season in one go. This season, what we've tried to do, and I think it's partly why it's become so successful this season, is we don't, we've not done that. Paul and I have, have, have done it all ourselves. Everything has been just... Instead of sort of getting other people to help us with, with other aspects of the programming and, and trying to get them to do it the way we want it, we've just kind of done it. And I think that what that's done is it's given us a, a flow and it's given us a sound that's not so varied, if you like. It's well, it, not... it gives you a stronger form of an overarc because you're completely across it, uh, which, you know... We've both got exactly the same equipment, we've both got exactly the same sound palette, and we both know exactly what the other person is doing because we speak to each other on the phone like 20 times a day to check and we'll throw things to each other. What do you think of that? Oh yeah, I like that, but can you just try that at this bit and, and vice versa? And it would come back and forward and back and forward. You know, we'll have version 15 of tracks. You know, we'll, we'll mm. listen to something that's going, yeah, uh, Pavel, Pavel Escapes V23. You know, and that's because it's been back and forward so many times with somebody else having an idea. Yeah. And that's great when you're doing it between two people because that idea doesn't get diluted so much down the line. If you're doing that with four different people, then you tend to, to start mm. hearing it after a while. You hear the other people's ideas. So it doesn't sound like such a unified entity, if you like. I'm trying to think. Yeah, no, I know, yeah. I imagine one of your questions was how do you collaborate? Or how do you... <laughs> 
Cat off! Yep. There you go, Kels. There's your question. Now I guess yep. I'm up. <laughs> it's exactly that same. So that that you know, in any form of collaboration, it's uh, you. So we work in two different. Uh, we countries <laughs> we work in two different countries technically yeah so. um but you know we have our own studios and it's you know too much the, the the world that we live in now internet's just so fast you can we we share we you know be on the phone or we you know transfer can files so easily places like new york exactly yeah in virginia it's crazy yeah and you know and it's probably once a month we'd be in the same room together or, or maybe yeah. more than that. I don't to know. Talk, to, we yeah. usually talk and tail. We'll get together at the start and go, oh, what are your thoughts for this? Yeah. Have a, have a little bit of a, a brainstorm. And then at the end, we'll get together, make sure everything's all in order and present it. And then on to the next one. Yeah. It just it's another but it will, churning machine that just keeps rolling and rolling. Once it starts, it doesn't stop. Yeah. I mean, the good thing about, if you know when, like, because composing can be quite a solitary uh, job, you know, if if you're just by yourself and your thoughts and you're composing something, you think, is this any good? Is this like uh, you're not sure? And then if you're just by yourself and you've composed this thing that you probably think is a masterpiece, and then you go and like present it, and you turn around and the director and producer just like, oh yeah, <laughs> and you're like, oh my god, and because so that's like the destroyed. first per- yeah that's like the first you know it's its first airing so to speak but at least in a collaborative process you've kind of got a line of that's like the first line of defense so to speak you kind of you can trial it out and, and multiple times and so when Scott's saying we're sharing files like say Scott will work on an area and then he was like oh, I'm uh, like start this you have a, a pass on it and then I'll have a pass on it and then it go back to Scott and he'll do something and then then get you know back and forth and, and, and likewise that you know it goes both ways and then and also uh, even if we're not you know we're sharing the same palette of sounds so uh, we, we may be working on cues and then we'll share the cue you know we'll be basically over the crop uh, like across all of it and be talking about and kind of almost critiquing each other's oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, music would be like, oh, I think, oh, yeah. you know, it would be like, oh, I think you should have changed here or, or like, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. But it, it, like, having that sort of second uh, pair of our eyes and ears is really, really useful because by the time you've got to the, your, you know, when you're presenting, you've already kind of almost divined out all the creases because yeah, you're not just kind of going in like, yeah, I don't know. It's just you know, really it's, it's funny. Sometimes you'll do something and you know it's wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what yeah. you're doing. Can we relate to that, Kels? <laughs> it's just not right. And you know you've just done it to get, you've just got, done it to, get to the next bit. Oh, yeah, you just cheated. But then yeah. you play it to somebody else and they go, what's that bit? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I, I, I know that wasn't right. I just did it. <laughs> So then you go and actually with it because you've just been lazy, really. You know, if you really wanted to, you could have fixed it in the first place, but no, you just tried to get to the end. Yeah. <laughs> we might have, uh, we, we can, we can feel that, you know, a little bit. We might, <clears throat> we might have had a few, 
of these recordings that, you know, went a little like, and I was like, fancy editing rather than redoing, yeah. you know. I hope the big time film producers are listening to this because I don't think we'll get hired. <laughs> of course they are. This is the sit rep. <laughs> They're all listening. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, it's just, I mean, it's just any sort of process and it's just kind of, you know. I think a lot of people will yeah. sit down and tell you, well, I sit down at the start and I think of this and I prepare this and I get all this ready and I do this and this and this. I think if they're telling the truth, there's an awful lot of people that procrastinate for ages and and then it just happens. Yeah. yeah. You see, it does just, I think, with any musical idea, you know, it's you're kind of playing around for a while and then suddenly, like, I mean, that's the form of inspiration. You kind of, you find something, you're like, oh, what's that? And then suddenly, like, I don't know, it's jump on it. It just, then you might, then, it, I don't know, for me, when you're doing stuff like that or, or, or composing, just generally, you suddenly like, I don't know, it's like an out-of-body experience, almost like you just do it, and then five or six hours have passed, and then you're going to go, and you're like, whoa, okay, all right, great, who did that? And like, you're like, oh, I did it. And you kind of, I don't know, it just sort of happens. It's very strange, because you, you suddenly become extremely focused on an idea, and time just disappears. You get your job done. And then you then sit back and check what you've done. And it's like, oh, right, yeah, because you just get completely lost in it. And so it's, I think most, any composer, will, when you ask them, like, how did you compose that? They're like, I have no idea. <laughs> it just happened. Seriously, like, because it, it just, just happens. And it's, you know, you can get over-analytical about it. But the reality of how these things happen, the thing of messing around that then and these messing arounds go from like recording interesting sounds or or, or just dabbling on the piano or or kneeling on the end of the piano and hitting a sound of it oh, what was that by accident that's an instrument that's supposed to be played high and i've suddenly played it really low but yeah my god that makes a great sound so yeah you end up doing something i mean we're making it sound making it sound like um we don't know what we're talking about <laughs> But obviously, these are educated mistakes. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it's like these are the things that are happening out of experience and a lot of time yeah. learning your trade and your equipment. You know, but yeah, we do tend to fumble quite a lot. We fumble around until something inspires you, and then yeah, you're right, okay, I mean, you run with it. You can go. Yeah. What has been the most difficult thing you've had to compose for? Across the board or in strike back? You mean? Either. Both. Probably across the, yeah, across the board. What's been the most difficult thing you've had to do? You want to go first? Me. I find it. Is in what, what projects or just anything or, or strike back? I mean, is there a particular project that was difficult or was there a scene that was difficult? Is there, is there something that pops into your mind when you think I was banging my head on a wall, stuck on, you know, I couldn't get this one thing through? <laughs> Version 221 of, of Catch This Man and, and season five. What was the one that was going down the, the tunnel? Where were we again? This is my terrible memory kicking in. Yeah. Stop That Man. Yeah, yeah. Which was season in America. That would have been Legacy, season right? five. Yeah, 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 yeah. The one that... Dun, 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 yeah. The one that Did that take ages? Yeah, because we passed it around. There was you, there was me, there was Simon... Yeah, we all had to go on it and just evolved. It took about, I mean, it probably wasn't difficult, it just was time consuming because of, yeah, I think it's the houses. I think it's the things that trying to think of a specific scene, 
are it's probably more of the longer act, the longer cues where there's like a big set piece and it's like a seven minute long kind of thing. I'm just trying to think. Of, I know you're saying that, but I find you do the long set pieces really quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I. Yeah, I can struggle. I, I can struggle for longer on a thirty-second piece of nonsense and still be sitting there at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's a it's a filler. It's like a, a little. Do you know what's actually very difficult? This is yeah, that's me. I've, I've thought yeah. of it now. What's actually very difficult is something that is played as a sting, but you don't want to make it stingy. Oh, so actually, if it, yeah. If it's a little thing that has to be in between scenes that just has to take you from this scene to this scene and you have to do that in such a way that doesn't sound like a television da, 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 and now onto the next page yeah. if you have to try and do that elegantly in a very short space of time that can be really difficult i can add to that go scenes where there shouldn't be music and there's no need for music and you're basically and helping out and you just badly score. acted or badly directed. Well, 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 well I mean, like, we're not, talking, I mean, not talking about strike back. We're not talking about strike back. <laughs> Generally, no. I mean, no. It's, this is like a general note, to be honest. It's, it's, right. it's more of a, a scene where or anything you were working on, or uh, maybe there may be like a cut that is obviously working different shows and shows played in America don't have ad. You know, there'd be like a different version where they've got right, ad breaks. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like the beginning of the ad break, they want some music at the beginning because it's the beginning of the ad break, but there wasn't music originally. Mm-hmm. And no, there's no jeopardy, there's not really anything going on. And it's like, okay, what's going Just on to here? Get you into it. And it's, yeah, sort of trying to score a scene that doesn't particularly have a, you know, any emotional drive. And if you, as a movie, you wouldn't have music. And, you know, those scenes are kind of, because you just think you, you can't get away with doing so little. And sometimes it's like accepting that, you know, just the barest amount is completely fine. But you go around the house sort of think, you know, until you get to that point where you're like, you know what, I like just like three notes. It's, it's enough. But it's convincing yeah. yourself that that will suffice. Uh, sometimes a director will say to you, you know, I didn't quite get what I was looking for in this scene. Can you help us? The scene doesn't deserve music. It doesn't want music. It doesn't feel that music belongs in it. So, you know, I don't think putting it there is going to make any, it's not going to help you any. I guess it's the final, you know, it's the final sort of thing that production has to like. It's the last tool in the box. Save it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, And, and, you know, those scenes take quite a long time because then you start really looking at, I guess, the subtext of what's going on, you start thinking, okay, they're obviously having a conversation that's not a scene that's in there for no reason. You have to then start thinking, okay, what is the reason for the scene? What do we really want to portray here? You know, it might be not so obvious in the first instance, and so it just takes a bit longer because you have got to play a lot of, a bit more in depth about it. Yeah, but you guys are like the, uh, the fixers. <laughs> <laughs> I did an interview, I interviewed Max Osinski from um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and he was saying like, he wants like, his only note to directors would be like, more violin when I'm talking. <laughs> like, it, always, it always makes it sound so much better. <laughs> a mournful cello at an appropriate moment can be very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're sad, are you? Okay, now we know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, Kelsey asked you about 
difficult scenes. I'm wondering um, over these past seven seasons and now going into the eighth, is there, are there scenes that you're particularly proud of the music for? Yeah. 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 And lost. what are they? <laughs> it's like, they're just yeah. like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, weirdly enough, that scene that I was talking about that, that I said was possibly one of the most difficult was, I'm very proud of that scene. I think it's, it's got a great tone. It's got lots and lots of elements in it. And it, it pulled together a lot of parts of that season. And this one mm. run down this alleyway and it led to, you know, that it led to the eventual suicide. What was it? Oh no, he was he was going to blow up his. I can't even remember what happened. Now. He was going to blow up his his friends and all sorts uh, of stuff. It, it followed up. It went through a, a huge emotional gamut from action to pathos to emotion to oh, it's all gone wrong. Mm. You know, it, we went through an awful lot of different examples of mm. of what you can do within a seven eight minute section i enjoyed serbia yeah you love serbia and last that was season. a big eight minute cue i love doing that <laughs> it was the end of last season culmination of last season when it was all in the wet in, in in the warehouse and everything was about yeah do you remember in the big russian hangar when they were going to steal the server mm -hmm. it was yeah. like tension tension yeah and building and building uh, yeah. So slow, such a slow climb right to the end. Yeah, I just, I, I, I enjoy uh, working on those scenes where you have like a huge overarc and where you can kind of build this tension and you're like, it's not stopping, it's not stopping. And then it just gets more and more and more. And I, I kind of, what episode are you at now in America? Uh, you, we're it. airing this after, after season nine. After episode nine. Yeah, I don't yeah, want to so get yeah. yeah. Spoiler. Yeah. No, I don't want to give it away. the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, and we can edit it out and move it to a different episode if you want. Here's so I can't remember. Thing. Was there music behind the oneer in episode nine? There is. Yeah. It was okay. okay. All right. Because yeah. that is like the most stressful scene. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Less is more. There was a lot more to that music, and then finally yeah. we're sitting in the dub with Jack. And Jack felt that there was too much going on, too much top line. I mean, what what's under there is still there, mm. but we had melody playing and we had little elements yeah. that would draw your ear. And through the process of the dub, we stripped all that out to make it just a lot more subtle and a lot more still. It's almost like a drone, basically. Yeah, a posh drone, yeah. as Paul likes to call them. <laughs> A push <laughs> but obviously it you know it, it builds and then it's like level three level four level five you know it kicks off to the multiple levels as i hey, have a long way to go uh, and i think the stillness helps because you've got this one shot you're taking you through yeah. so you can't really have anything mythical because there's no cuts you so know you, have you seen that i thought you said it was that's what we've seen the whole series yeah have you so yes. we got screeners i told so you we, were we, important yes <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so you know we, what we I'm talking about the end of the. I was about. I was kind of. Yeah, but I didn't want to get. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can we can put we this, can cut this we can cut part this. and just say yeah. say the end of the series is very good. The end of the season, I mean. Yeah, end of the season. There's yeah, a lot. It's almost like a, a similar reference to the end of the last season. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 There's definitely an escape and some. Yeah. So those like tension, time running out <coughs> situations. 
Love it. That's just a sport. Like, that's a sport too. Yeah, I just I I like ramping up tension, and then when you haven't got enough tension, you just big it up more. And uh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Plenty of opportunity on this show, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you guys, I know, are together um, for the next couple of days to work on the new album, correct? Correct, yes. Um, so yeah. here's, this is a little question for me, actually, just specifically for me as a fan. Are we ever going to have access to the music from the first two seasons on a recording anywhere? No. Unfortunately not. I'm so sorry, but I think we've missed that window. Do you know what I think? It was um, it was quite a elongated process to allow this this season to come to to soundtrack, which is there's something that I've, I've just I've been learning about. Uh, basically, we approached HBO to see if they wanted to release it. They said no. It's not really what they do anymore for an established series unless it's like a huge massive hit like a Game of Thrones or something like that unless it's unless it's on that kind of level they don't tend to do them so much so me being a, a stubborn bugger I, I kept um, on at the people at Left Bank I said there's nothing we can do I mean surely we can if they don't want to release it surely we can release it independently on our own which which was eventually what happened they give us the rights to, to put this album out. So we've now done it through a company called Madison Gate, which is um, Columbia subsidiary, Sony Columbia subsidiary. Um, and we are putting that together now. We toyed with the idea of combining it to a series six, seven, five, six, however you want to look at it. Didn't seem to make a lot of sense when we actually looked at it as a body of work because there are so many themes and threads tying through yeah. this yeah. season that we kind of wanted to tell a story. Mm. We wanted to tell tell it episodically and as a, a general big picture as well. So what we're tending to do now is we're, we're, we're approaching each little section that we're dealing with as its own little story. There's a start, beginning and end. We go through various different events and we do that in five sections, which are the five episodes. It was the way that made sense the most. Mm to us to do it because there's, because there's so much music you know we're, we're going through it and we're having to be really ruthless because there's things that we love like oh that's my favorite one yeah but it doesn't really do anything in a soundtrack context let's take it out and so at the moment we're still at two hours you know so we're trying to get it down from two hours to yeah. at least a reasonable one hour 30 Epic minutes sauce. i'm good with two hours there's no problem with two hours <laughs> you the soundtrack and then you just go to the gym and then just be like pumped and just yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have to contain it to a reasonable amount yeah of, uh, I, you know i think we it's kind of nice we, we i suppose that we're trying to approach it in a sort of concise way of telling a story of the you know like trying to make a through line of, of you know a narrative of the season rather than just higgledy piggledy you know this all over the place at least it has a kind of uh you kind of listen to it if you listen in order and not skip around uh it will kind of take you through the journey of this season yeah. um, that's the idea anyway mm -hmm. I've, well that's similar to the to the first soundtrack album that you put out you you pretty much did the same thing with that one correct yeah i, I mean I think it, the people that want the, that want this soundtrack are fans and they know this. They know the show, mm -hmm. 
So you'll be jumping all over the place and giving them something from episode 10 right at the beginning. You know, mm. they kind of want to take the journey and obviously they can come and go as they please. They can jump to this bit or that bit. But, you know, I, I guess I just want to try and, and stick to the way that it was made, if you like. Yeah, I think it helps when you sort of put it together. Yeah. Well, I'm so, super excited to get it. So get a lot done this weekend, guys. We'll be like, we're looking at the next, if we put that together within the next week or two, hopefully we should get that out within the next three, four weeks in the US. I would have, I would wow. Have That's awesome. Talking about a very fast turnaround. So. Yeah. So fingers crossed. Well, clearly, to... Paul's in, in charge in terms of the time here. <laughs> <laughs> He's going on holiday. <laughs> Working holiday, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we have a question that we've been asking everyone all season that we actually got from Philip Winchester, Stonebridge, okay. that he gave us for a different interview. But um, one thing that he likes to do um, when speaking with anyone who's worked on Strike Back, because everyone talks about what a marathon it is and yet how closely you all work together to get everything done. And so you end up going through a lot together. And there's no reason just because maybe you're not on the set every day. It doesn't mean you guys aren't going through it, too. So. What he likes to ask, and so what we're asking everyone, is what the highlight, the high point for your season was in putting the soundtrack together, and the low point of the season was for you. Okay, I think the high point. The end. Particularly. <laughs> 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 You're the only one who said that. <laughs> it's so, it such a long process. There's points, right? There's a high point, and the high point, I would say, for me, is the is the first time you go to the first dub and there's the final exec view and we all sit and we watch what we've done and we sit and we watch it all back and with all the pieces in place and it's all there and we go, yeah, we've done good. And then the next day you start the next one. Blank. Okay. <laughs> got blank canvas. We've got to start again. So that's okay. Next one's usually okay. Third one. Oh my God. Episode five and six. This one again. Oh no. <laughs> How are we going to survive this? We're not even halfway through yet. Oh, right. So we then pick ourselves up. We try and, you know, we're basically scrambling to that point where we see it on the dubbing theatre and we watch it and back and go, whew, that was good. Right, okay, next one again. So there's there's three points. There's the beginning, there's the middle and the end, I think, are, are the best. I I tried to... I, I tried to go to Thailand before Sully had his accident. So I went out there and that gave me a nice vibe up to get started. As I got there, suddenly fell off tuk-tuk and the whole thing went to shit. Um, so I ended up going back on holiday for a little while and not seeing anything. Last year, I didn't get a chance to go to Malaysia, even though my family are, are half from Malaysia. I seem to just be there at the opposite sides of strike back happening. Um, next year, I'm absolutely for sure going to go to Croatia, which I believe is the the shooting point yeah, yeah. as they're talking about at the moment and that's always a very exciting thing when you when you're on set i find that really gives me a good kick up the bum and gets me started and then it's just having the momentum to get you to the end yeah. to me i mean um on this season anyway from the moment of the process it's kind of probably right at the beginning because uh so on this season we uh, we had um, some conversation before we really started getting into episode one and two. We 
started writing some just ideas <coughs> non to picture, uh, which is a really nice thing to do because you can just kind of come up with musical ideas. And uh, so we wrote like four or five tracks, I think. Based on the script and the yeah. synopsis and everything. We know, we know the general. We got, I think we got some rough cuts or something. Or we just, we had, we had a conversation about musical style and direction that we wanted to take it. And to be honest, actually, a lot of, provided some really useful content. Um, so like the music that you hear in the docs, cue, like a lot of the episode one and two stuff we did actually like non to picture. Yeah. And then when we got and the cut, it was like, oh, how can we make this work? And that's quite a fun thing to, to approach it in that way um, because you've got the time to do that. When it gets further down the line yeah. and you're getting like, okay, we need, we've got three weeks to like write what is it like eight seven, two hours two hours of music yeah <laughs> and, and you know and you get that produced and mixed and delivered it starts to get quite exhausting and, and, and so the sort of time of, of of like you know obviously by then you've got a wealth of material anyway and you need to be reusing that material and uh but you just need to get the job done but at that very beginning process that part where you know, you've got quite a lot of time and there's not uh, a pressure to deliver something. I, I find that the most, I don't know that, like, because it's, it's when you can be most creative. Because yeah. you just, you write what feels right and you're not bound by any visual content. You know, you're not changing it because you need to hit a cut, sort that out later. Um, so that, for me, is quite, that's really fun. Um, and also, like, we actually... Scott mentioned it before, so we made some interesting sounds for this season. <laughs> um, and because uh, yeah. we were, you know, we're trying to give it more of an identity. And whenever you do any music or any soundtrack, if you've got something that no one else has, it's like someone goes, Whoa, what was that sound? Like, how can I get that? Oh, you can't, it's ass, you know, it gives it yeah. own thing. And so there's this, uh, I don't know, my favorite instrument is this monstrous sound. Um, the, provided quite basically it sort of sounds like a really you probably hear it and even it sounds like a really crazy meaty like vangelis style synth it's like a kind of brassy style synth basically it was uh i've got a didgeridoo and so we recorded the didgeridoo and then stretched the sound and then you know, sampled this instrument uh so it's kind of like, you know it sort of moves around i don't know it here but uh and then we processed it in such a way that it was sort of distorted it and turned it into this humongous style synth. Um, and so it's, it was great high up and it was also great low down. It was extremely versatile. So it's good. But that, that was, there was a few other sounds that we had. Yeah, we well. did a, a really nice one for Zaza. You know, oh, yeah. Which was a Jews harp, a John harp. I don't know what you guys call it. We call it Jews harp. Yeah, we do too. No, 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 no. Yeah. So I'm sitting there making this going, no, no, no. Little tiny baby sound. Yeah, it's like, okay. So that gets then gets lowered by two octaves, put through loads of processing, distortion, and everything. And it turns into this horrible, guttural rah, sound that we used for Zaza every time he appears on the screen. And oh, yeah, wow. it's just. Making, making interesting sounds yeah. like that, you know, you don't know what the sound is and mm -hmm. never expect that it came mm -hmm. from something as ridiculous as that. 
I can't wait to go watch that again now. <laughs> Honestly, like whenever you hear this, like, sort of, there's kind of like a Brahms sort of sound, but uh, it was used low down. So whenever you hear this crazy, huge, low synth, it, that's a didgeridoo uh, processed up. And then even high up, we, um, the mo actually, there's, the cue where you hear it the most, where it's in its isolated form, is at the end of episode two. Noven, oh, yeah. after the Noven fight with um, Shu. With Shu. Oh, Shu. Noven's like alone on this balcony. Yep. Uh -huh. And uh, so there's a kind of conversation with Mac. Coltrane. Uh, no, it's Coltrane and Noven. It's Coltrane. Yeah, yep. Coltrane. So Mac, yeah. So, and it cuts to Noven by herself and Coltrane comes in. It's yep. quite isolated. So the music playing at that moment, it's like this basically stripped back source. This, the main synth sound you're hearing. It's playing this melody. Uh, that's the you did, and it sounds. Okay. It's available to buy from all media. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like you know, it's it's got. Uh, whenever you make your own stuff, it has a kind of analog live feel. Real, it's got a real it's, quality. Yeah, it's real because it is real. Sampled instrument. Yeah, just and it's uh, yeah. We did a bunch of other other things, you know. We can't go to everything, but there's like along the route, we, we, we were like, okay, what else can we make? What can we throw? And like, actually, I love the drums. You should tell about your drums. The most massive sounding. You should. Even, they'll one, they'll laugh when you show them. This won't work for the podcast, but it will work for you. <laughs> my my one year old son has a drum kit. <laughs> They are showing okay. us right now, which is about yeah. the size of Paul's head. <laughs> but like that is the basis for the army moving in on the on last season. It would have been uh, when the guys, what, what was it? The the neo Nazis were hanging. <gasps> are you serious? That? <laughs> oh my god! Wow! A kid's thunderous sound. Yeah. Yes. You know, yeah, and you'll hear it again in episode ten when the mm. when the convoy are taking Pavel uh -huh. and, and everybody to to, uh, to some place that we can't yeah. talk about. Yeah, <laughs> on spoiler uh, location. Um, you'll hear it again in that situation. But basically, that's like a kid's drunk it, and we just we take oh. these sounds and we mess them heavily compressed and and also up. There, was, and... there was the the cat and. Cat and Nova Chase, which was all metal pans and pots and mm. anything metallic we could find. Yeah. Like there was a wok getting hit with a with a spoon. All these kind of things. It's just whatever you can find mm. that makes it sound a bit more interesting. Sometimes it's easier than, than looking through your sound bank to try and yeah. find something. That... It just gives it a bit more realism, really. Uh, you know, you like you look around and think, okay, what can we how can we turn that into something? And you know, and it's by the time it's gone through a bunch of effects and you know we've produced it up and played around with it suddenly it's the biggest thing you've ever heard and you're like what is that thanks and tune in next week for another need to know session at the crib follow us on twitter at strikeback crib out